you would, go ahead and grab your Bibles. We are going to jump right into uh, our third week of the Meeting Jesus uh, series. Uh, what we've been doing as part of this series is very simply just reading through the stories of the people who met Jesus during his ministry. Um, and so we're in week three. We started with Jesus's um, manifesto at the wedding, the wedding manifesto. And then last week we read in John chapter three about Nicodemus who came to Jesus at night. And today we're gonna read um, probably of the stories of the people who met Jesus during his ministry would be my favorite. In fact, just being transparent, this story today was really the seed that grew into this whole series because it's, it's, it is such a powerful, rich story. It is the story of the woman at the well. So if you would turn in your Bibles to John chapter 4 for what we are calling bottomless, bottomless. If you don't have a Bible here with you today, there are some that are spread throughout the seats. If you don't own a Bible, we would love to give that to you as our gift to you. Please feel free to take that home with you. We think that's vitally important. And today we want everybody to be able to read the story together. We can't read the whole story this morning because it is, it is well, it's, it's super rich. It's super, um, it's like eating like a really, really, really rich chocolate or candy that you can't eat the whole thing at the same time. It's, there's so, in fact, this is the longest conversation that Jesus has with anybody during his ministry, including the disciples. This is a, it's a long story and we can't get into all of it. And so I'm going to actually ask right now for a favor. Um, the favor is this, My fa- the favor that I'm going to ask from you is that you would take time this week and in your life carve out some space this week for this story, okay? Just make some space to be able to read through this story and as you do, I'm gonna just pray that the Holy Spirit would take this story, which is so rich that we can't get in through the whole thing and that he will take that story and the Holy Spirit will reveal Christ to you through it. Okay, so whether that's the first time you've read the story, or the hundredth time, the thousandth time, whatever it might be, that as you read this story, that it would be revealed to you afresh and anew. So take some time this week and read the whole story just as part of your devotions, whatever that looks like for you. Um, if you would, that would be a favor to me. A couple things I want you to pay attention to while we're doing that. Number one, pay attention to how Jesus cuts through what are very obvious and real barriers between him and this woman, okay? Pay attention to the fact that there are a barrier, there's a barrier, there's a gender barrier, there's there's a racial barrier, there's a religious barrier, there's um, a barrier, a moral barrier, the barrier of sin, and watch as Jesus surgically just cuts through each and every one of these to get right to the heart of it. It's a beautiful thing to watch. The other thing I would want you to watch as you're reading this story or to pay attention to is the revelation, the growing revelation of who Jesus is through this story. Watch the names, the titles that are given to Jesus through the story. Starts with Jesus in verse uh, six, verse nine, Jew. 
Verse 11, 15, 19, sir or lord. Verse 19, prophet. Verse 25, messiah. Verse 25 and 29, Christ. Verse 26, the I am. Uh, Verse 31, rabbi. And verse 42, savior of the world. Watch as it grows and snowballs. And this is the only place, well, there's one other place in 1 John where he's referred to as the savior of the world. Um, beautiful, beautiful kind of development of who Christ is. So pay attention to those things even as you read it. Today we're going to start in verse 1, John chapter 4, verse 1, here's what it says. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, verse 2, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, He left Judea, and he departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. Last week, we read the story of Nicodemus, and um, that happened in Jerusalem, which is in Judea, and between the story of Nicodemus and this story, there's very little, okay? In fact, it probably is meant to be taken together, and we're probably supposed to look at one in relation to the other, but... The only thing that separates them is this story of John the Baptist baptizing people, and somebody comes to John the Baptist and is deliberately, it seems, trying to create a tension between John the Baptist and Jesus. It says, you know, everybody's going over to Jesus, and then you have that great statement by John the Baptist where he says, what are you talking about? There is no tension here. He must become more, I must become less. He must become greater, I must become less. He goes through that statement, um, totally diffuses the tension. But then John chapter 4 verse 1 starts off with Jesus then hears that somebody's trying to create tension between John the Baptist and Jesus. And Jesus was baptizing, but not really Jesus. It was just his disciples was baptizing in Judea. And so he decides, you know what? I'm out. (laughs) I'm going to head out of Judea and I'm going to head to Galilee. Now a lot of times when we read these stories and we hear of these different places, we don't necessarily know where they are. Right, Like we hear of Judea, we hear of Samaria, we hear of Galilee, and we don't necessarily know what that looks like. So the first thing I want to do for us this morning is to give you a visual of that, okay? So even as, even as Jesus is um, in Judea, he's headed to, uh, to Galilee. So there's a couple different places that we see on the map here um, that are kind of mentioned in this scripture. In the first one, we have Judea. Judea's down here, Okay. That's right where Jerusalem is. So Jerusalem is right there. So even as uh, Jesus is in Judea, he's headed up to Galilee. And in between is this place called Samaria. Okay? So if that's the case, then Jesus is baptizing. We know he's baptizing. And so he's probably, it says that he stays in Judea after, after, uh, after Nicodemus, meeting with Nicodemus. So he's baptizing. And while he's baptizing, He finds out about this stuff, and he says, all right, that's it. I'm headed up to Galilee. We know where where specifically he's headed to because it's at the end of John chapter 4, which is in Cana, which is where he did the the whole um, turning water into wine at the beginning of the series. We read that story. So he's headed from here to here. There's a couple different ways that he could go in order to make that happen. We know right where the roads were, and so there's one road that runs right alongside the Jordan River, and he could have taken that path in order to get there. 
Another path that was commonly taken was, was a path that would run through, and he could go through, if this is Jerusalem here, he could head over to the coastal road and head up this way and end up in Cana. So there's two options. The third option is that he could head back in, and he could go up right through the center. Okay? So he has these three different options, and each of them have reasons why he would possibly do it. Of course, the Jordan Valley Road would make the most sense to me because, of course, right there, he's got like this built-in water supply. The entire way, he could stop anywhere along the line and get himself some water. And also, besides that, something that we don't necessarily always talk about is even the elevation change between point A and point B. If he takes the Jordan Valley Road, it's, it's a fairly simple incline that's kind of steady and slow. So it's an easy journey. Okay, if he goes one of the other ways, that's not the case. There's a lot of elevation change. We all know that in Jerusalem, that there is, I mean, everybody always goes up to Jerusalem, and there's a reason for that, because there's a huge elevation change uh, going into Jerusalem. And, and even where he starts is lower elevation. So if he goes along this path, he's going to have elevation change. If he goes along here, he's going to have elevation change. And in fact, as he enters into Samaria, there's, these, there's the point where there are these two mountains that are right, uh, they mimic each other. They're twin mountains. One is Mount Ebal, and the other one is Mount Gerizim, okay? And these two mountains show up in another place in Scripture. They show up in Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 12, when it says that as they're entering into the land, Moses tells them ahead of time, now when you get into the land, I want you to split the tribes in two, and I want six of them to have representatives who climb one mountain, and I want you to get six representatives from the other tribes that climb the other mountain. One of them, the ones that get up on Mount Gerizim, I want them to just shout at the top of their lungs and pronounce blessings on the people of Israel. And then on the other mountain, the, one that, the ones that climb up Mount Ebal, I want them to shout at the top of their lungs. Read it sometime. Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 12. I want them to shout, shout at the top of their lungs curses on the people of Israel. So you'll have these two mountains that when you see them, you'll see that you have this choice. You have blessings and you have curses. And right in between these two mountains, nestled in between them is this town called Sychar know right where it is. And that's where Jesus meets this woman at this well because while he had different options, the path he chooses is to go multiple elevation changes, head right up through Samaria to get to Cana. Okay? That's the decision he made. And what it says here is he had to pass through Samaria. He had to. The word is, it was necessary for him to. You ever told Jesus what he had to do? Have you ever been praying for something and you're like, oh God, this is what you have to do in this situation? How'd that work out for you? <laughs> you know, in the Gospels, no one ever tells Jesus what he has to do. The only one, and I read through every time this word is used of Jesus, it is Jesus using it about himself, or it is the writer after the fact saying what Jesus knew he had to do, okay? 
first time it's used in relation to Jesus is when Jesus is in Jerusalem when, as a kid and his parents leave without him. And they say, where's Jesus? And they come back and they find him in the temple and he says, don't you know that I have to be in my father's house? First time it's used. It's also used again when he's referring to early on in his ministry when things are going really well and he's in this town and this town, it's in Mark chapter one, but it's also in Luke four. And it says there that, that Jesus is at a point where everybody wants him to stay there and minister there. And it says he gets away and he prays. And he's talking to the Father, and he comes out of that and he says, no, I cannot remain here because I have to. So I guess the other person that maybe tells Jesus what he has to do would be the Father. But he says, I have to go and I have to preach the good news in other towns as well. The only other time it's used of Jesus is when he's talking about the cross. When he says, no. I have to go to Jerusalem. I have an appointment. I have to be lifted up. I have to suffer and die. These are the things I have come to do. These are the things that are ahead of me. These are the appointments. And then it's used here in John chapter 4, verse 4, where it says, And he had to pass through Samaria. He had another appointment to keep. Okay, so he heads that way, and John chapter 4, verse 5, it says, So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph, and Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. So the scenic route takes its toll. In fact, right before Sikar, there is a significant elevation increase. So it says that it's right about, when he gets to this well, it's right about noon. So it's hot out, and he's, it's, a, it's a bit of a journey. And so he sits next to this well. He sends his disciples into this town of Sikar, and he just rests. Now, he wouldn't have had to do this if he would have taken the Jordan River route. He would have been able to just go ahead and get it. It says he doesn't have anything to draw water for himself. And water was big business then. Like it was, it was essential. In this place in particular, the ground is all made of limestone. And so the water is wicked away from the, the ground level. And so to get to the water... You have to dig a well, and we, we kind of have a pretty good idea of where this well is. It's still there to this day, if it's the same well. It's, it says here that this is Jacob's well. We don't have it accounted to in Scripture that Jacob actually dug the well. We do know that he bought this field and that Joseph's bones are buried there, but there is still this well, and it's a pretty nice well. It's about seven foot wide, cylindrical, and it's about 106 feet deep, and you can still get fresh water out of it today. And water was kind of a big deal then. It's kind of a big deal still to this day, right? Because like for me, I mean, we, we are so used to it that we don't really think about how easy it is for us to get water. Like if I want water at my house, I walk over to the faucet and I turn it on and I've got running water and 
In fact, I've got two faucets on my sink in my kitchen. One of them is for water, just for washing stuff. And then I have a second one that has a little knob on it that is my water that is just for drinking. Both of them come from the same well, but I was thinking about it just the other day. The one that goes into the, into the glass, the one that I drink, by the time it comes out of the faucet, it has been filtered seven times, which is probably overkill because, quite honestly, the water from the well is safe as it is. When I first came to Springfield, there were a couple thoughts I had. Number one, it was the first Springfield I'd ever lived in, and there's a bunch of them. (laughs) But the first Springfield I live in, first thing I thought was, don't you think we should have more of a spring in Springfield? You know what I'm saying? Like, shouldn't we go not just from winter to summer? Shouldn't we have like a time of spring? I mean, finally, we've Last week it was snowing. The week before that it's snowing. Today it's raining. And I'm okay with rain because April showers bring May flowers. It's spring. That's what it's supposed to do. But I just always expected more spring in Springfield. The other thing I I guess I was shocked by was the first time I tasted city water in Springfield. I hope there's nobody in here who works at the water department. The water in Springfield is disgusting. Like I drank that for the first time. I thought... It's called Springfield, right? Like, we're named after water, and the water is disgusting. Did you know there's 31 cities in the United States named Springfield? That's just the cities. Then there's another 33 townships in the United States named Springfield. 64 locations all around the United States. In Ohio alone, there are 11 townships named Springfield, because people in Ohio are like the least creative people ever, apparently. But why do you think that is? Why? Because water is a big deal. And when you think, okay, where are we going to get together and make a city? Well, how about we find a field that has a spring in the middle of it? And then they think, what should we name it? Well, let's call it Springfield. So there's, we're, not the, we're not the first Springfield. The first one was Springfield, Massachusetts. But we are, just so you know, the largest. So we've got that going for us. See, just as much as water is essential today, more so it would have been then. And this land in particular is a land that sucks. There's no water that stays on ground level in this area that Jesus is in. At the Jordan River, it does. Where he's at, it doesn't, because it's all limestone. And so to get to the water, you have to big, dig wells. And you have to go a ways down. And so this well in this land is 106 feet deep to get to the fresh water. But they didn't just find wells. You know what else they found? Archaeologists have found all across Israel these things called cisterns. And cisterns are different than wells. Okay, here's what I mean by this. Here's a, a, a well is about getting to the aquifer that's already there. A cistern is something different. A cistern is something that they would dig themselves that would be no more than 15, at most 30, 15 to 20 typically feet deep, and it looked like a flask. Okay. And even as they would dig this thing, um, they would dig around it, 
these openings that would, um, they'd stack rocks in, and so the water during the rainy season would filter down into this, and they would fill it up. And that was the cistern. But there was a problem, because again, limestone, so porous, all the water just kind of goes right through it. So what they did was they took that limestone and they ground it into a powder and they mixed it with water and they made a plaster or a cement and they took that and then they went all the way around with it so that when the rainy season was done, the water would uh, stay there through to the, to the dry season. It's called the cistern. And they built these and have found them all across Israel. Because it was vitally important that they would have water available and they would draw the water out the same way they would draw it out of the well. And Jeremiah ended up in one of those things and probably Joseph too when they were thrown into a pit in the ground. It was a cistern most likely built in order to carry that water. So Jesus, after having made this trek up this hill or up this significant incline, between Mount Gerizim on one side, Mount Ebal on the other, stops in this town because he's tired, it's it. And he settles right next to this well. Okay? Verse 5, or verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. So again, we don't have time to read this all, but very clearly, right off the bat, you see Jesus kind of cutting through these barriers, right? Like right off the bat... Here he is in public, or in this place where this woman comes along, and a, a Jewish male, especially, like, wasn't, even to his own wife, wasn't supposed to talk in public to her. And so this is a big deal, because Jesus completely disregards, well, he disregards Billy Graham's elevator thing, right? Like, his protocol that he would never be in an elevator with a woman, Jesus totally doesn't abide by that. Here he is in public, and along comes this woman who is not looking for Jesus. She is not sick and wants to be healed. She's not trying to bring somebody along with her. There's not a demoniac she's hoping to have delivered. She's not seeking Jesus at all. She's looking for water. But while she may be looking for water and not looking for Jesus, apparently Jesus is there looking for her. And he finds her. And he says, go ahead and get me some water, please. And she says, what? I am a woman and a Samaritan. Why are you even talking to me? In verse 10, here's what he says. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. This is where we're going to stop today because this one statement is so incredibly profound. 
This one statement really from this point on then is unpacked and it's kind of we see the, the implications of two statements here. What is, if you knew the gift of God and who it is. We could have made the entire series of meeting Jesus just about the woman at the well and we could have preached a four-week sermon series on it. But we're going to have to stop here today and I'm going to encourage you to read the rest. Because he said, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that's bringing it. Right next to my house, we have a pond. And I call it a pond generously. It's really, really little. Okay? And it's kind of gross. Because this pond was formed, it's not more than even like 30 feet from our house, but... My house sits at the top of a hill, and at the bottom of the hill is the road, right? And, and at one time, that road was known as, I guess, I heard about it recently, it used to be called Pig Farm Road. I don't know why we don't have cool names like Pig Farm Road anymore. Now everything's Farm Road 4,327, and mine's now a farm road, but before it was paved, probably, it was known as Pig Farm Road. And up at the top of the hill is my house, and... At the bottom of the hill is the road, and, and right next to that hill that my house is on is another hill, and right in the middle is this valley. And so probably back in the day when it was still Pig Farm Road, there was a problem there. And so the water would run off of those two hills into this little valley and probably run down and hit that road and wash it out. I say this was probably the case because it isn't anymore. Because, again, I've been told on my property, about 30 feet from my house, is this dam. And it was a dam that was built, apparently, during the Public Works Administration, FDR, the, uh, so almost 100 years ago. And I actually have a picture of this uh, dam. If you could put it up there for me. This is it. It's about 8 feet tall and about 14 feet wide. Okay. And this dam holds this water and keeps it from running down and washing out the road. Now, at this point, if that water were to rush down and hit the road, it would go right underneath. They've since, you know, you have this pipe that goes right under the road and it's fine. But this dam still sits there. I named it Bochamp Dam. I stood on top of it with a big flag and <laughs> Bochamp Dam. But over the years, as you can tell, I don't know if you can look closely, but towards the bottom there, the ground has settled enough that there's been this crack in the middle of the dam, and water leaks through it. And so what happens to our pond is that it fills up, and then slowly over time, it goes back down. It keeps tepid. The water's not rushing, but it's, it's, it, it, it slowly gets back down to where it's just mud. So it fills up, it sits there for a while, just kind of gross, and slowly leaks out until it's mud, and it goes over and over and over and over again. It's so gross. Um, well, a while back in the youth ministry, we were doing a thing that we called Men Versus Wild, and um, as part of that, uh, the goal was that we brought the guys from the youth group out to our house and we had to make them survive overnight and we had these kind of tests throughout the night of, you know, how much of a man are you? And so we were promoting this and 
As part of that, I called my good friend, Jed Lawson, and I said, hey, Jed, do you mind making a video along with me? And so he played the part of Bear Gorillas, and we made this video. And I want to share this video, and I want you to pay attention to the scene where he's in the water, if we could cue Men versus Wild. That really had no point. I just wanted to share it with you. Uh, poor Jed, when we filmed that, I didn't have a good place to film the water scene, so we used this pond, and it was so gross. And every time he came up out of the water, like the water was getting in his mouth because he was holding the knife in his mouth, and he would come up... So if you watch the water, it's kind of going inwards because we couldn't, I mean, he did it like 10 times. I'm like, all right, get back under there. Let's do it again. And I'm so glad he didn't get E. coli or something else because th this would have been a totally different story had we done it. But this water was disgusting because of the fact that the water doesn't, if I want the water to be clean, what I need to do at some point is I need to dig it all the way out. And I need to put down sand, and I need to put down chat, and I need to, at some point, I need to repair the dam. Because as long as that leak is there, every time it fills up, it's going to just go ahead and slowly leak back out. You know, God refers to himself as the living water more than just when Jesus does. He refers to himself as the living water back in the Old Testament as well. In Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, he says, this is what I am. I am the fountain of living water. But when he says this, it's a part of really an indictment against the people. Here's what it says. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they have hewed out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. See, the problem with these cisterns was that 
even the slightest of ground shift would cause that plaster inside of it to crack. And so it would rain. It might even be a torrential downpour, and the water would go up. But then when they got to the dry season and they were ready to draw back out of it, there would be nothing in it because of the fact that the plaster cracked and all the water drained back out. It might rain ten times. It might fill up ten times, but it would just go ahead and keep leaking back out. And he said, here's the problem when people try to replace me, the fountain of living water, with something else, that thing becomes for them nothing but a broken cistern. And they can put all kinds of effort into it, and they can fill it up as many times as they want, but when they seek to go back and draw back out of it, they are not going to find anything. So Jesus is sitting next to this well because he's thirsty. But he's also sitting next to this well because of the fact that this woman was thirsty. And I know that she's thirsty because as you continue to read the story, you find out that she's been married five times, six sexual relationships. And nobody is married five times, six relationships without starting thirsty or ending thirsty or both. And maybe it's her fault. Maybe she's looking for something and she can't find it. Or maybe the other side of it, maybe the men in her life just keep looking for something and not finding it. We don't know if it's her, we don't know if it's them, but after it's all said and done, this woman is thirsty. And she comes to this well and Jesus is waiting for her. He had an appointment. And when she gets there, it is the meeting between the bottomless pit and the bottomless fountain. And he says to her, I can give you living water. But it always, always starts by recognizing the need. So here... She says to Jesus, wait, why are you even talking to me? I came here for water. And Jesus said, yeah, you sure did. And I'm the only one who can give you what you actually need. What I think is sad about Jeremiah chapter 2 verse 13 is that it's not an indictment against the nations who've never known him. Who is it an indictment against? It is an indictment against those who know the living water and have forsaken the living water. That they've tasted it, they've known what it's like, but they turn away from that and they turn instead to these little cisterns that they can build for themselves. But every single time they do, it turns out that it ends up being broken. And no matter how much it fills up, it ends up emptying back out. No matter how much they put into it, they're never able to draw back. A broken cistern. And for us, our broken cisterns, I think, can be different things. 
And I believe the Holy Spirit is speaking to many people right now about relationships that are broken cisterns. Maybe it's one, maybe it's a bunch. A job can be a broken cistern. Boy, I I expected this to be able to put all of this into it, but when it comes down to it, don't get anything right back out of it. Relationships, jobs, possessions, all of these things are broken cisterns. And over and over and over again, there is a temptation that we have in our own lives to turn away from the fountain of living water and instead to these things that will never, ever fulfill. I want to pray in a moment, and as we do, I'm just going to pray that the Holy Spirit speaks to our hearts. And for some in here, maybe you've never known the living water. Maybe for you, it's, it's never been something where you've experienced what that's like. Or maybe you have, but you find yourself back at the same broken cisterns over and over and over again. Well, Jesus said, come to me. I don't know if you've heard it from the beginning of this service until now. He's saying, come to me, because I am the only one who can satisfy. And the meeting of Jesus is always the meeting between a bottomless pit and the bottomless fountain. And this week, my hope and my prayer is that as you read this story and you seek to create just a sacred space in your life with this story and pray for the Holy Spirit to apply it and introduce you afresh and anew to Jesus, that you would see again that living water because he's the only one who can do it. Would you stand with me? We're going to pray right now. And and I want to pray for our week. And I want to pray for each and every one of us that we meet Jesus. And I want to pray for this time right now. And if you need prayer for anything, or the Holy Spirit's working on your heart in a moment when I pray, the prayer and altar team are going to come up to the front. And and even as we dismiss, I, I don't know that you need to feel pressure to go. We're specifically ending with just a few minutes left so that maybe you could take some time right now and just be in the presence of God and taste that living water again. Because until you find and taste that, you don't know what's tepid. You don't know what's, what's water that has, has no value whatsoever. So, boy, I hope you taste it today and more this week that you meet with Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit that he's elevated and lifted up in your life. Father, as we come to you right now, Lord, we're ending this a little bit different this morning. We're taking some time to just set aside and create a space here for us to just be in your presence. Father, I see in Scripture that you call yourself the fountain of living water. And I know in my own life, I've witnessed, even recently in my own life, that it is so easy to disconnect ourselves from the fountain of living water and to 
hew out for ourselves these little cisterns that we seek to find satisfaction in. But Lord, may nothing ring more obvious in our own heart but that those every single time will end up being broken and when we need to draw on it will leave us with nothing. And yet Jesus himself said, if you knew the gift of God, if you knew who it is who is standing in front of you, you would have asked, And I would have given you living water. Father, may we recognize and see, just by the power of your Holy Spirit and conviction of your Holy Spirit, those areas in our lives that are broken cisterns. And may we see, by the power of your Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ lifted up and afresh and anew this week as we make space in the By the power of your spirit, may we meet Jesus again. May we experience him. And if we've not experienced it, have that experience of him, may we again. Because it is an incredible thing to see Jesus waiting beside the well for this woman to arrive. She just thought she was coming for water. And she found the fountain of living water. And what a beautiful story it is. May we find in our own lives that same story. Convict us, I pray, by the power of your spirit. In your name, Jesus. Amen.